welcome to the Bridges Between Us podcast. I'm your host, Matt Schenker. Have you ever read a book and then right as you finish thought, ah, I wish I could talk to this author and just ask them about this and ask them about that? Well, I have the complete honor of getting to sit down and record this episode with Emily Abe just minutes after finishing up her book. Emily Abe is a storyteller who keeps it real. She works online and in person with clients from all over the world. She teaches a holistic approach to overcoming developmental trauma and regularly writes about the many depths of life, including how to build a meaningful life as a neurodivergent, highly sensitive person. Her new book, which was released last week, is called Can You Turn the Lights Off? The Journey to Becoming Your True Self. And it was filled with such incredible heart and there were so many lines and paragraphs that just felt utterly poetic and she's just so real as she talks about her pain and so insightful as she adds in crucial cutting-edge science to help us all sort of understand our human experience a little bit more in a way that is super relatable so really encourage y'all to get your hands on this book this conversation was incredible. Emily is a coach, educator, intuitive, and writer. And today we talk about her book, her life, and we dive into some of the hardest conversations our society is trying to talk through right now. You may notice that my voice is a little strained. Have no fear. I am recording this introduction about a week after I recorded this episode. I lost my voice when I went out to see some live music for one of my best friend's birthdays and they just kept playing these amazing sing-alongs. So naturally I lost my voice. So thank you for bearing with me as I shared this introduction with my strained voice. Thank you for being here to dive into this episode with Emily and I. Let's dive in, shall we? This podcast is brought to you by Pathly. Life is ever evolving. So we too are constantly transforming. And yet, despite the incredible technological innovations of our modern world, it is harder than ever to make meaningful, sustainable changes in our life. We make changes most effectively when we are connected and supported. And when we have structures that help us connect with our feelings and take actions toward what matters to us. You can live a more authentic and fulfilling life, and you deserve support to help you do that. Pathly is a community that is dedicated to being your space to slow down, reflect, and make decisions that help you live your fullest life. Being part of this community helps me uplevel my life every day. You can learn more today by visiting www.findpathly.com or become a member by emailing hello at findpathly.com. So, Emily, I'm so excited to be talking to you today and right now uh, for so many reasons. One of those reasons being that I just finished your book uh, that we were just talking about a little bit before, and it was so beautiful and filled with so much heart, and it feels so relevant to so many conversations that we're struggling to have right now, collectively. Mm-hmm. And so there's so many different threads that I would love to like just explore with you. And so it's it's not it's not always the case that when we've just read a really powerful book that we then get to 
talk to the person that's written it. So it's uh, it's an honor for me and I'm excited for us to, to dive in and just talk today. Thank you for being here. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It means a lot. And so could you tell us a little bit just about the book? I think the this book could be a good place for us to just start this conversation. Um, you've yeah. always, it sounds like, been a writer throughout mm -hmm. most of your life. It's been like you've been drawn to writing and you talk a lot about the power of writing within your book. And so have you known for a long while that you wanted to really write a memoir like outlining your life and kind of what it feels like for me as I was reading the book was like that your story is this powerful vehicle that gets to take us on this tour through some really complex and hard conversations that feel so much safer and exciting and inspiring to navigate through because it's your story that you're taking us through. So is, is that something that you know like you've always wanted to do is to really tell your story in a book? Yes. First of all, thank you for seeing the book properly. That means a lot to me first. Uh, that's Yeah, that feels really good to receive. Um, yes, I've actually wanted to write this book probably since I was 12. Like I, I felt when my parents got divorced around, around the age of 12, I started really relying on writing, which is included in the book um, as a fact. But, but for me, I started realizing that writing was something that allowed me to process my life through very difficult, charged, traumatic situations. And I also noticed that when I wrote about things, if I shared it with other people, like through my teenagehood, um, that there, it's, it's like actually so on the nose, but it, it created this bridge between us, literally. Mm -hmm. And it allowed for kind of a me too to be resonant there. And for me, I sort of started feeling less alone because of this thing that I did, which was write and then share and then receive connection based on the fact that I went to something deep, you know, like in, in the writing. And then I started realizing that this was probably the most healing thing I could do as a practice. And yeah, I, I just kind of knew I wanted to write a memoir and write these stories as they continue to happen, even though I didn't really understand the end, nor could I expect it, nor did I feel like the end of this specific project or this memoir had happened yet when I started feeling like I want to write this one day. Um, but then, but then it did. And, you know, if I hadn't written it, I, I think I would have regretted it. And I also think like if I were on my deathbed tomorrow type of a thing, like the one thing I would really want to do is write this book. So for me, it was a thing of like, I can't live life without writing this project and, and letting it pour out of me because it is just such a big driving force that I've always, always oriented back toward uh, wanting to do. And exactly for that reason, to start these conversations and to have connection. Yeah. So powerful. And I think there's, there's a line in your book where you say, I'm, I'm writing this story because it deserves to rest outside of my body and not in it. Yeah. Like the, the power that can come from that, like that you get to own this and that it doesn't have to be like stuck, that you get to take it out and take a look at it. And then I love that you framed it as this, this bridge, that then it gets to be this bridge to other experiences and to other people and to other identities. And that's really beautiful. Yeah. 
Exactly. And it, it's like, I don't want to carry all those stories in my flesh or in my fascia or like in my organs, you know what I mean? So I'm going to put them on some pages and they're going to live outside of me. And they also serve a purpose like that. So it feels, yeah, it, it feels very liberating and, and, and it's a catharsis process for me, for sure. No, I'm so with you. I think one of the things I, I also loved for me reading through this book was that I've been working on um, a memoir as well. Nice. And it, and I've, I've had to work through this piece for me that I'd be curious to ask you about too, which is like, it almost feels sometimes self-indulgent to be writing this book that I'm expecting people to pay so much of their attention to like things that have happened in my life. And that's mm-hmm. one side of it. And on the other side, similar to you, I've, I've, I've had a lot of speaking events with people. It's really, it's really a core aspect of who I am and what my work is. I, I've, I train counselors, I've trained teachers and educators, and I, I work with leaders and organizations. And I know that when we're asking people to question their beliefs, it is so immensely vulnerable that for us to even just take the science and the data and to put it in front of people and to lecture it at people, to give them just content to consume, that it almost misses them. That almost immediately there are walls that go up, that people can't actually digest it and take a look at it clearly for what it is. And it's almost like in order to create the trust that creates the safety needed for somebody to even open up to considering new ideas that are rooted in the facts that we have, that are rooted in now two truths, like the truth of the data we've collected and the truth of somebody's shared experience. It's like we, we have to root it in that. Like we have to show up and share data, but packaged through story. That way we're yeah. owning it. So pe- people can feel a little bit more open. Um, and so I'm, I'm just sort of in awe seeing your book and how you've, how you've done that. And want to just kind of name the power within that. And I'm curious <laughs> if any of that, like that, like resistance to like, feeling self-indulgent as you're writing did that come up for you and if so how how did you move through that yes so what you're saying resonates so deeply with me and and it's kind of like this archetype of the pioneer that I always refer to of like I'm gonna go first right like I'm gonna go first which will then encourage you to come forward with your story or your processing you know like the point is to kind of bear yourself and and these stories, I mean, this was my point, you know, to bear myself, but it, there's a profound generosity there of, so that you can now go further into yourself than you would have before you read this type of a thing, right? Like for me, that's what I've received from art so many times. And it's such a honor to be able to do that. And yeah, in terms of the self-indulgent piece, yes, I definitely felt that I actually had planned to write this book in 2020 to begin it in 2020. And I had like made all my scheduling around this book. And I had started that process at the end of 2019, which, you know, had no idea pandemic was going to occur at that point. And I felt indulgent many a times writing this book and also kind of careless in some ways, because I felt like, what if, you know, I'm putting all this attention into a book or writing about my own life. And I could instead be working with more clients or serving more or doing something different with my time, given the crisis of the world. Right. 
um, both like personally, I felt like, is this the right move to kind of invest my time, my money, my energy into this creative project when, you know, who knows what the future is going to look like with my business, with my world, but then also from like a service standpoint, it felt like, is this the best use of my time? Is this the best thing for me to do in terms of like actually helping and serving my community and, you know, my clients, et cetera. So yeah, I, I felt that a lot. And I think what helped me keep going was that, you know, th- this was going to heal me writing this memoir, but then mm. also this was going to be that same kind of bridge um, that, you know, I felt when I was in teenagehood and starting to write and stuff like that. And, and that was purposeful too. And I just kept orienting back to that and, you know, kind of hoping for the best in terms of my own self-critic. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, uh, I really, I relate to everything you've said here really deeply. Yeah. So it's like the, there are a few things I'm hearing. One is like, as you were writing and really that self-criticism and that sense of self-indulgence would come up, one piece you would lean into is the truth that even if this writing were just for you, that it's a value, that it's a value and that it gets to be this like service to yourself, connecting deeper with truth and healing. Uh, And then this other piece of really leaning into the truth that you've discovered all throughout your life, that when you do own a story really truly, that Mm -hmm. then when you share it, it then gets to be of service to others. Perfectly said. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, there's something so timely about this conversation right here around the power of story, Mm. because our world is so heartbreaking right now. We, we do have systems that are fractured, that are built on this multi-generational ignorance around what humans need in order to thrive. And there are systems that have been designed often intentionally and sometimes just habitually uh, to benefit some and hurt and disempower others. And it can feel so frustrating and we can feel so powerless when we see the size of these systems and how ingrained they are. And it turns in this question, like, what can we do? What do we do? And so many people that I'm having conversations with right now and that I'm working with are really feeling a lot of this frustration and this powerlessness. Mm-hmm. And the piece I often come back to is this, this role of story, that when we're looking at transforming systems, there are a few different pieces that come into play. I went to this, I went to this meditation retreat a couple of weeks ago with Pema Chodron, and it was her nice. last public speaking event. Um, really? It was her last public speaking event outside of Nova Scotia. So she may give other talks in Nova Scotia, but this was her her last time leaving Nova Scotia to lead an experience. And she okay. talked about this. She talked about these, these modern systems and how do, we, how do we transform societal systems? And for those who don't know who are listening, you know, she's, she's the first woman, American woman to be ordained as a Tibetan Buddhist monk, uh, Tibetan Buddhist nun, sorry. And so she's been meditating for years and sitting with people through some of their deepest hurts for for years and having conversations and thinking about this for years. And what was so powerful was 
she led us through a practice and a, and a talk. And the first person to stand up and ask a question, this is a few days after the Uvalde shooting, was this woman mm-hmm. from Sandy Hook. And she said, yeah. how, could, how could I possibly spend a single moment connecting with my own emotional experience when there's so much work that needs to be done and when it hurts so deeply within me? Mm-hmm. And then the next person that stood up to ask a question was this woman in her mid-50s, this Black woman who had been an activist for most of her life. And she said, you know, I live by the motto of always wear comfortable shoes so that if I ever have to take the streets, I'm always ready. And so she said, I I hear you about wanting to be patient and loving, and I want to be patient and loving. And at what point do we start doing things? And she talked about some really powerful thoughts that I think are so relevant to what you and I are talking about right now and what I'm seeing so much of in your book. And one of the pieces is we can't see clearly if we're not connecting with our own inner emotional experience, because then those things that we deny within ourselves, they take up energy and they start to pull at us and they, they limit what we're actually able to see truly. So in order for us to take wise action, to take the most effective action, that's going to have the most impactful change. We have to invest time in connecting with ourselves. So from a social change perspective, it's always of value. And we don't, that doesn't mean that we have to always be diving deeply into all of our pain all at once. That, that can be traumatizing, absolutely. She talked about having this sense of just compassionate abiding. Like, can you just feel a little bit? Can you just bring a little bit of tenderness to your experience? And can you lean into believing that doing that helps you see yourself more clearly and helps mm-hmm. you then show up in the world a little bit more truly so you can be of service to others too? And By doing that, you have greater access to hope. Mm. And so that that hope is essential for us to be able to make change because we can't feel motivation without hope. So then we had this huge conversation, people talking about hope and the role of story and how impactful Mm. the weekend was for them to be able to just talk with people about what could be possible. And that's what I find is one of the really powerful pieces of, of your book and of your work that you are leaning into that pioneer spirit to be the the first one to lean into these really painful places, to really follow what you're feeling, and then to take a look around and make sense of it and to create story that then invites other people into the story that then they can look back and then they can look at, oh, what am I experiencing? That the story can be the hope that then invites us to take the action. Right. Yeah. Well said. That's beautiful. And, and I'm thinking, like, as you're talking, it's also like, from a nervous system perspective, it's like, it's very hard to be able to enact change when you're still in a stress response chronically, right? Like when you have very little access to your window of tolerance, when you have very little access to your parasympathetic ventral vagal area, if people know what that means, it's really just like where the system feels relaxed and like grounded. And um, if we're not in that space because we haven't done our own healing, it is very hard to then go out there and try to like have space, patience, resilience to affect societal change, in my opinion. So 
if someone's living in a constant stress response, even if I would be living in a constant stress response still, I think that that is when I'm the least useful, if that makes sense. And not to like objectify myself or put myself into a capitalist like framework. However, you know, if I want to help other people, I also have to be able and available for that. And that means that my own healing needs to be completed or at least leaned into if, if that resonates. Right. No, that makes total sense. Makes yeah. total sense. And one of the pieces that can come up there is, when I'm talking with people is so many people aren't even aware about the stress they're carrying. Yes. And I wonder if you can speak to that. Like, why do you think that is that so many people are walking around totally unaware of how much stress that they're mm-hmm. carrying? I mean, I think bottom line is it's very normalized in the sense that we expect it from each other. We expect it from ourselves to not be well. Like if we look around, you know, there are all these expectations that are coming from these systems of oppression. Um, Like just for example, like the capitalism urgency, right? Like it doesn't feel very good to have to like be responding urgently to everyone. But also if we look in, like if we're really honest with ourselves until we address it, it's like we also sometimes, most of the time, because we're living in this world, especially in North America, we sometimes expect it from other people, right? So for me, it's like, well, if we're just like walking around expecting each other and ourselves to follow these guidelines that these systems of oppression have, you know, inflicted upon us, then stress gets normalized, right? We have to keep showing up even if we are stressed, we cannot break, we cannot rest because our bills will not get paid. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's not that I specifically have a solution for it. And that's like how I start the book off. It's like, I'm not exactly sure how to fix the world. So I really don't know how. Um, but what I am offering is to be able to see ourselves clearly in order to be able to at least be the masters of our own bodies and to be able to notice and access what's actually happening inside of us so that we have agency in post-traumatic growth or, you know, in these systems of oppression that we're unfortunately all victims of, right? Like that's the only way I think we can have any power. Like we have to start somewhere. If, does that make sense? Like, does that track? Makes total sense. Yeah. No, that makes, it makes total sense. And we, I'm trying to think of the Einstein quote and it's not coming to me right now, but it was something around the lines of like he said, like if he had an hour to, uh-huh. to solve a problem, like mm-hmm. he would spend like 59 minutes thinking about the problem and one minute thinking about the solution. Right. And, and so it's like, rather than us needing to even buy into that capitalist narrative that yeah. as soon as we identify a problem, we need to also be suggesting the solution. That we right. that our that our productivity is our self worth, and so we always need to be doing, 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 instead yeah. of buying into that. Actually, inviting in a little bit more spaciousness yeah. to like expand the conversation around what is happening here. Yeah. Instead of instead of this like okay, we have some structures that aren't working. We need to immediately create new structures. Mm-hmm. Instead, actually, like actually, can we take a look around? Can we take a look mm-hmm. around? Can we have some people that are really committed to? seeing themselves truly and seeing the world around them truly enough 
and helping mm. us just see and make sense of what's here. Can we just, even if it's one time a week, start chewing our food, you know, like small, mm. really doable steps of reclaiming our own agency, right? And being able to attune to ourselves slowly but surely, even if it sounds so minimal of like, I'm going to breathe and chew my food one time this week. It's like, we can also start there, you know, we can start there with self-connection. We can start there with attunement and then it builds and it builds and it builds. And then once we're able to do it for ourselves, we're able to, you know, also do it in relationship in my opinion. And then, you know, then we even go deeper within ourselves. So then when we're able to be in community and in proper co-regulation, I feel like at that point, we have a chance, right? <laughs> like at that point, we can stop the cycle of harm being redone and redone and redone through generations. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, and as, as we dive into this conversation, you know, it's, it can be, it can be somewhat easy for me to look at like our, our modern systems and to, to say, well, look, all we all we really need to be doing is creating more spaces where we can build enough trust and within ourselves and together, so that we can feel through things, so that then we can yes. take these actions. And for for me, I after diving into enough of the the research and the teachings for so long, like I can see that so clearly. And I a piece I want to bring into this conversation is the privilege that I have by also existing within systems that were also designed for people who look like me um, right. that I went I went on like uh, I went on a solo cross-country road trip last summer because I, I needed that to reconnect with myself and mm. one of the things I had the luxury to be able to do is to just like I could park my car and I could walk around the city whether it was daytime or nighttime and I could generally feel safe because I'm a white guy and so mm. I didn't have to necessarily worry that like if police officers saw me they might think that I was just a criminal up to no good um, or that any of these men that were walking by me might overpower me. Like I'm also in pretty decent shape. Like I was, I'm walking around and I'm, I'm healthy. I'm a white male. And so I have a lot of privilege, even in just being able to walk around these cities. Like right. one of the things that fascinated me years ago, they did this study where they asked men and women in, in the United States, I think, uh, what would you do if the opposite sex was totally eliminated from from the planet I for saw 24 this. hours. Yeah, right? I saw this. Yeah. <laughs> and I and I think that the men had like scattered answers. Like some of them were like play video games for 24 hours. Like some <laughs> some of them were like hang out around the house naked. Um like just do like blow some stuff up. Like do all sorts of like scattered random answers of things. And the vast majority of those who identified as women answered the question saying just to be able to walk around at nighttime. Yeah. Yeah. And so there's, it's, it's leaning into like the frustration of yeah. like, what, what in the world can we do right now when these systems are in place that are disenfranchising specific people that are continuing today to benefit white men like what yeah. can we do other than just having conversations what can we be doing within our life like we've talked a little bit about the importance of story which i wholeheartedly believe in 
So we, we, we need story in order to motivate our action, in order to help us move through what we're experiencing. And what else can we be doing right now? Good question. I, I mean, know. I also have to acknowledge my own right? privilege, my whiteness, and also the body type that I have as a woman, you know, um, I am disabled. I am autistic. I do have a history of chronic illness and still my privilege helped me get to where I am, you know? So it's important in my work to also be paying attention to that and being paying attention and paying attention to people of color in general who are autistic, for example, who, you know, will be targeted more than I will. Let's say if I'm walking in a park and twirling and stimming, you know, like that yeah. is a very real reality. And it's like, I, I really appreciate you bringing that up of like, it's easy for you. And it's also easier for me as well, given my own privileges to be able to, you know, gather the resources I need. And for example, be able to take that break, right? Like a lot of the times it's maybe an uncomfortable truth, but it's also like a lot of my privilege have allowed me to actually do the healing of the things that I wasn't so privileged around. Right. So yeah. it's, it's holding multiple and simultaneous truths. And to come back to the question of, you know, what can we do other than having conversations? I'm a really big fan of mutual aid. I don't know if, you know, you're familiar with where you do mutual aid work, but for me, getting into the community and literally getting into neighbors and, and people around me physically where I'm living or where I am going to visit and travel to me helping each other and not relying on this like big daddy government thing <laughs> for me helps a lot restore this like good co-regulation this feeling and this trust of like people care about my well-being and I also deeply care about their well-being and we look out for each other and it's not in this individual comp competition atmosphere it's it's very much to me like that proper pair pair bonding of you know your well-being is just as important as my well-being and whatever I do to you I do to myself and vice versa and to me that's what creates like that trust or that feeling of safety even when there's so much around that feels and is very very real and being unsafe um so, I mean, for me, I really engage in mutual aid. It's not the only thing one can do, but that's, that's what co comes up for me in terms of like, what else other than conversations? Yeah. And, and I don't want to minimize the power of conversations because something yeah. I'm also hearing in what you're saying is in addition to being able to connect with what you experience within your life and to be able to build trust within yourself and heal your own experiences and speak to them. Uh, it's also being able to build community around these hard questions that people are asking and these similar challenges that people have, which mm -hmm. is something that you've really done throughout your life is building, building that sense of community to help people make sense of things together and to mm -hmm. build connection together uh, and ha being able to have conversations in community, even digitally is so powerful. Yeah. Um, and there's what comes up for me right now is this I'm thinking also of this guy I talked to a couple of weeks ago, another mm -hmm. white male. Mm -hmm. And he was talking to me, he said, Matt, you know, I, I just have this like guilt that I'm, that I'm feeling and I don't know how to get rid of it. And as we were talking mm -hmm. through it, a, a piece that came up was 
you know, he's, he's feeling this guilt that turns into this like frustration and anxiety because he, he looks around and through the news and through social media, he sees all of these tragedies that are happening that seem yeah. endless and mm-hmm. really, you know, wants to do something, but doesn't know what to do. And so he wanted, you know, to talk through like, how can I, how can I process this guilt and anxiety uh, so that I don't have to feel it? Um, and so we, we oh. talked about a few things. One, we talked yeah. about like boundaries, right? That just because you have a care for the tragedies happening in the world doesn't mean you have to be consuming and connecting with them for 24 hours of the day. So like one, big let's, fan let's of that. There, yeah, <laughs> big right? fan of like, that. Yeah. Like yeah. let's, let's <laughs> figure out where we could put some of these spaces. And the other piece was, do you have to get rid of it? Yeah. Um, for, for one, like, do, do you have to get rid of it? Like we know the dangers that come up when we treat any of our inner experiences, like they're supposed to be deleted because there's no delete button in the nervous system. Yeah. So one, like maybe you don't have to delete it, but the other piece is maybe it's actually a good thing that it's there. Exactly. Like maybe particularly cause we were two white men talking about it. There was, there was this piece of maybe we can actually own that part of our responsibility is to be able to hold and feel this guilt and not need to try to get rid of it, not need to let this guilt or shame that comes up for us lead Mm -hmm. to us trying to then look away, to turn away from things that are happening or to then kind of shut off and not go into action or to use that as like this, like I need to prove myself to get rid of this experience. So I'm going to do lots and lots of good things for other people while totally mm-hmm. neglecting my inner experience and become mm-hmm. like this rescuer that ends up causing yes. all kinds of harm and yes. almost on accident. And so it's, it's, it's also that piece that even comes into the power of conversation that yeah. we have to have these conversations to help each other figure out what is ours to own and where are the spaces that we have things to offer? Yeah, I agree. And I'm also thinking about the fact that I don't think it's a badge of honor to also be walking in this world, not attuned to it, right? So if you are feeling guilt, if you are feeling whatever you're feeling, you're properly attuned to something, which means you're in reality, which to me is a great like marker of nervous system health. Really, it's like you're you're in reality, you're actually responding to, to the real things that are happening. And like you said, I also am very into the boundaries and also being able to regulate yourself when there's intensity involved. Uh, um, but yeah, I just feel like, wow, actually, I would take that as a good news. You, you are attuned. You're actually present. You're embodied. Amazing. Cool. Of course, it may be uncomfortable and there's ways to kind of you know, help your body and, and, and feel safe. Um, but yeah, for me, that's like, great. Let's, let, let's lean into that. And let's also have conversations about how we are attuned and then go from there. You know, in your book, you talk about that as really the way that you're talking about developmental trauma. Mm-hmm. And it's like being drafted into a war zone that you had yes. no choice about. And mm-hmm. then finding your way through that, so much of that was around drawing drawing boundaries. And so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that yes. connection between development and trauma and how it's kind of like being drafted into a war zone. 
Yes. Um, one of my good friends says that's her favorite chapter of the entire book. And I'm like, why? You have no, it doesn't relate to you at all. She's like, I don't know. It's just really, it, you really feel that chapter. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 100%. Cool. Yeah, so essentially in this chapter, I, I'm comp- I'm using a metaphor of developmental trauma being like being drafted off to war. And, and me and my brother, I have a little brother, we kind of had to go and it wasn't really our choice, but it was just what society had chosen for us. It's just what we had to do. And through that chapter, I used the metaphor to kind of go into all sorts of different feelings that I have around now being an adult and kind of looking back at developmental trauma and also um, being the sibling of someone who has pretty severe addiction. And, um, you know, as a result of the developmental trauma. And this chapter is really diving into being able to actually decide and be okay with the fact that you're choosing to heal even if other people are not choosing to heal or they do not have the resource in order to be able to heal the same way that that you did and I go into all sorts of feelings like I said like there's guilt and there's anger and there's um just profound sadness and disconnection and grief and for me if we're talking about boundaries you know I had to, to make the decision, probably one of the hardest, if not the hardest decision of my life around actually keeping myself safe from re-engaging with the war. If you look at it from that metaphor, um, and, and that meant in more literal terms of having huge boundaries with my brother, um, around keeping myself safe because his lifestyle is actually quite unsafe. And for me, that meant having to walk life largely, especially in the past few years, without that connection. And I, I used the, the writing to kind of showcase it's like, you know, it's kind of like I'm a veteran with PTSD on bed rest. It's like, I've got to be careful. I can't like just be dragged back out to the war because, you know, I'm going to have to start the whole process back again. Um, but one thing that really speaks to me from that writing still like looking back on it is this feeling of having to process through like that survivor's guilt of I somehow got out of this and it's not really fair that you didn't and it's also not really fair that other people in general haven't but I get to and should I like get to and is that okay and why me and not you and you know why you and not me and exploring all of that and ultimately ending on the fact that you know I am not going to go back to the war and that's okay but it doesn't mean that healing from developmental trauma and the war is easy and it's actually quite lonely. And I really like how I ended that chapter because it's not like sugarcoating anything. It's not like, yeah. And then I like decided I was going to have this boundary. And that meant we weren't going to be an active relationship with each other because it was unsafe for me. And I felt a lot of guilt and, you know, now I'm good. It's like, no, like it, it's a grief and it's a hole in my life every single day. And to have to choose to have that kind of boundary and to, to, feel that kind of guilt and to withstand it and to not break within that guilt is quite a journey. And I wanted to speak 
to that. And I also just wanted to open up the conversation of like, doesn't it suck? And isn't it weird that sometimes some people make it and others don't, or others have a hard time healing, you know, because of either internal or external resources or their position in society and blah, blah, blah. And does that mean that we shouldn't get to heal and not really having a definitive answer and and feeling okay with leaning into, you know, that, still kind of makes me uncomfortable as a topic to be quite frank like you know and I'll, 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 I'm happy to have the conversations around it so that we can say yeah me too like there is this lingering guilt that exists in these kinds of situations and I'm not sure if I answered your question or just went on a rant but you can let me know you can <laughs> let me know how that's landing <laughs> if it's answering your question no it's, it's really beautiful what you're saying I think it absolutely answers the question and you did such a beautiful job of really just highlighting the complexity and the heartache that's involved with really just one aspect is like the healing journey. Like as, as we heal, uh, there may be people who aren't feeling certain aspects of their internal experience who aren't growing, who like you describe addiction as being, someone who's saying the world may be going on, but I can't because it hurts too much. And so when there's someone that we love who can't continue to go on living life and stays stuck within these hurtful patterns because they can't move beyond the hurt for whatever reason, that there's this immense complexity that comes up with it. That it's, yes. it's, not, it's not necessarily as simple as do I stay or do I go? Um, yes. That actually, like, there, one, there are ways to stay in connection with with people. It's not as simple as like, okay, yeah. you don't totally benefit my life, so I'm going to totally cut you out. Um, that yeah. maybe there's some way for us to draw boundaries here, so that I can find ways to love you and love me still. Um, exactly, so that I can love both of us, and both of us get to be safe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So, like, there's mm-hmm. there's that piece, and then there's the whole like piece for how addiction is such this pervasive aspect of developmental trauma that our society still isn't quite grappling with or having conversation around. Yeah. It's like, um, I forget the chapter number. I think it's probably somewhere around 19 chapter 19 around like, you know, we lose so many people to developmental trauma and it's, barely acknowledged nor is it like main it's definitely not mainstream knowledge right but it's like why it's like that Gabor Maté film uh The Wisdom of Trauma if you haven't watched it I so recommend it have you seen it oh yeah and I've I've read okay. basically I, I basically <laughs> anything Gabor Maté or yeah, anything Brown he does out, yeah <laughs> I just basically download into my system like, as fast as possible yeah <laughs> I love that yeah immediately so you know so of course in that way it's being acknowledged by great teachers such as Gabor um but in general like if you're not really in the self-help worlds or in the psycho like psychologically you know oriented profession um I don't think that it's mainstream that like for example most addiction is caused by developmental trauma if not all right like a lot of it with new knowledge and new studies and, and, and it's, it's really proving that addiction in a lot of cases is coming from this pervasive 
issue that we have generationally. And yeah, like for me, I, like I wrote in the book, I think it's actually really beautiful and poetic in, in some ways of like showing your pain that way. And I'm not glorifying addiction in any way by saying that. I just mean that I deeply understand the fact that the pain is so big and this is how you show it to yourself, to others, so that you're not bypassing it. And and yeah. so I get that, really get it. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. So in, in my life, I, I've been an addict. I, I was addicted to all sorts of things, drinking and then opiates and, and sex yeah. and really using anything I could to run away from the internal experiences that were in the way of the persona I was trying to play. Mm. Um, right. Yeah. Um, and I also had, I grew up as a kid with ADHD, who like mm. is, was a typical sort of challenging kid story of constantly getting suspended from school constantly feeling dysregulated and feeling chaos on the inside. So causing chaos on the outside. And I've worked with so many people who are now in their adulthood who are feeling a little, like they're, they're feeling a little bit of their experience. They're just beginning to lean into the work, so to speak. And they're, they're starting to like wonder around this connection of like how much stress they're feeling and like this sense of feeling like they always need to be hustling. And yet, also feel like they're not enough and this like lingering sense of perfectionism and like this like inattention and distractibility and why is it that I have all of these pieces going on and the piece that I feel like I, I want so many more of our spaces to be screaming which is the message one of the messages that I feel like your book really says really clearly is that we're not broken our systems are that the systems we're being raised within are actually perpetuating these ways of being because they have produced and reinforced narratives around how we're supposed to relate with one another that are wrong um, and that cause harm and that are limited and constricted and perpetuate this harm that leads to this developmental trauma. And the developmental trauma is the tree trunk and the roots that grow all of these similar branches. And so if anybody's listening and they're like, what? How are they saying that like addiction is connected to like ADHD and like stress and how, are, how could all these things possibly be connected? I'm curious if somebody comes to you and, you know, one of your uh, group programs or one-on-one, or if you're doing a speaking event and they've never heard of developmental trauma, how do you explain it to folks? Mm. Wow. Good question. I think it's chronically unmet needs chronically unmet needs in a time where your nervous system needs to be met to learn how to internally meet your needs and to be able to meet other people as well. So that's maybe the broad definition, I would say. Um, Of course, if you're looking at it from standpoint of like, you know, what's your score on the developmental trauma uh, quiz, right? Like the ACE score, they'll say it's, to do with adverse childhood experiences, meaning abuse and neglect and dysfunction, um, which does fall into, I think, my broad definition of it. But it also, you know, even if you were not hit to, or you were not hit in a way that you consider major, or um, I have opinions about that, but you know, in a way that you could, you consider was super, super bad. If your, your need for connection, for example, is chronically unmet by the adults in your life, whether that was your parents 
or your school teachers or the people who were guiding you and teaching you as your nervous system was developing and you were developing your sense of self, you know, that will affect you. You will have then a stress response to that need not being met. And you will try to get that need met through a hyper or a hyper or hypo response, sorry, you know, which means that you'll, you'll rise up in a sympathetic response or you'll close down in a freeze response um, in, in regards to this need not being met. So I think some of the core needs that we have, like I work with 10 and my programs, for example, like if those are chronically unmet, consistently unmet, we are going to go into a hyper response. We are going to go into a hypo response. And that, for example, can look like addiction, right? So in that way, I like to look at it from just our core needs instead of like, did you like, you know, have your dad hit your mom in front of you type of a thing. But that also counts, obviously, as an adverse experience. It's just, for me, it's more complex than just abuse, neglect, dysfunction. Does that make sense? Or does that answer the question? That makes that makes total sense. It's like yeah. um, that the trauma isn't what happens to you as, mm-hmm. as it can sometimes be the, the misconception that it's what's, what, hap- what is happening within you in response. Yes. And the thing that is happening in response to can be an action or an absence mm-hmm. that it can be something right. that is done to you or some need that you have that then wasn't met that like yeah. as, as human beings throughout our development, there are a lot of needs that we have. We, we develop throughout relationships, which any of us can see if you just think of, think of any of the horror cases throughout the past 50 years of a human being that is raised out of context of relationship with other human beings. They don't have mm. language skills. They have so many different aspects of how they function that don't develop. And there's a mm. reason for that. It's because the way that we evolved mm. is, has wired our system so that we learn and develop and grow based in relation with others. And so if we don't have these needs met that are delivered through relationships, that it like causes this harm. And that harm within us is this, this trauma uh, that leads to then us needing to address sort of the wound of these chronically unmet needs somehow in order to just wake up and keep moving forward. And yes. what you're saying is addiction can be one of those ways that then we have to cope with like that yes. chronically unmet need that then has caused this wound that we carry. Yes, I think your example is a beautiful example of that as well. I mean, beautiful in the sense that like, that's a perfect thing that makes so much sense because it's like, you, you said it was probably, from what I heard anyway, I felt like there was a lack of acceptance or lack of connection to who you actually were and what you needed, right? So it's like, that creates a chronically unmet need that then creates a response to try to like cope with the fact that that needs being unmet on a consistent basis. So of course it's like, if you know, you're getting kicked out of class, it's like you're experiencing what rejection, abandonment, lack of self-acceptance for yourself, lack of acceptance from others. What are you going to do with that feeling? If you don't know how to feel it, how to regulate it, how to meet it, if no one's meeting it for you either right? We're going to start totally. to have coping mechanisms. Totally. And uh, Dr. Gabor Mate also wrote a book called Scattered Minds about yes. how ADHD is connected to developmental trauma if anybody's listening and curious. And so for me, that was, that was my origin story. Um, and yes. he highlights that there, there is one aspect that is hereditary about ADHD. Like we often think of ADHD as a neurobiological illness 
that is genetic. And it's not, it's a, it's a neurobiological condition that comes from having the genetically genetic predisposition to towards sensitivity that you're born mm. feeling sensitive. You're born sensitive to stress and emotions and to the stimuli around the world. And then you don't have the development support that you need. And there's too much stress on your system. And so by not having the development support that you need and that stress then coming into your system, it then overloads. And it can be a trauma of impact of an action that happens. And it can be this trauma of absence. And so for me, that's what happened. Like I, and I, again, was born with great privilege. I was born with two parents who love each other. And I, I never, ever heard them really yell at one another, which was beautiful. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. and, and my mom was born from a house with all sorts of way deeper trauma. Um, mm -hmm. And she was really stressed all the time. And my dad mm -hmm. worked a lot. Um, and so we also moved when I was you know, 18 months old. And so we went from a really safe and secure family environment to then moving somewhere that was way more unpredictable. And just the stress even of a home like that, that was a white middle-class home with two parents that loved each other and were really trying their best and knew a lot about how children needed to be raised more so than a lot of adults do. Still, mm -hmm. I was able to experience this trauma that then led to me being this incredibly challenging child who like still holds the record for most suspensions ever given to a kid at my elementary wow. school. So I named wow. that just to name that we, if you're listening and you're thinking like, oh, well, I mean, I've, I've experienced a lot of privilege in my life. Like, I'm, I don't know if I have trauma, so to speak. Exactly. If that's just a hard concept to own, like one, that's okay. Like there's no pressure here for you to, to need to own that if that doesn't resonate. Um, and I would also invite us all to just consider how, inherently stressful our modern world is right now and how much stress so many people are experiencing and so I'm curious yeah. Emily like for you and like the the folks that you work with is that ever a difficulty that people are coming to you with like really struggling to own like the yes. stress and trauma they're experiencing in their life yes very much so I have a, a beautiful you know, roster of different people I work with. So, so some people, of course, it's more evident, as I was saying, like, you know, the adverse experiences that they're more evident, but also I would say the majority of people have not lived these huge big T traumas anyway, that come into my practice. Um, but they're still feeling the same way as the people who have lived the big T traumas. And then they're like, why do I feel this way? you know, like what is going on, right? So yes, it's like, if you look at it from like a little T trauma, big T trauma, meaning like these big event adverse experiences versus like chronic unmet needs or, you know, chronic stressors that can not just, not necessarily just be in the home space. It could also be in the school space in the society at large space, right? Yeah, that is very, very common. And, and I seek to kind of actually build that bridge for people to say like, you know, you know, your needs were very, very important. And there are all sorts of needs, why, sorry, all sorts of ways and, and reasons why our needs don't get met or can't be met in development. And if we understand all of them, we can have compassion for them. And sometimes what I find is so hard for people is to, to feel the compassion for their own parts 
that have been unmet and to really acknowledge how profoundly that affected them. And Mm. oof, like once we are able to actually go there and to really own how much something affected us, even if it's not the worst thing that could ever happen in the world. Oh my gosh, that, that really does something in terms of like depth in, in when it comes to the healing process is what I've observed. Like when we're really able to truly own how something deeply affected us, because then we're finally able to actually attune to ourselves properly. Like, and that's what we've been yeah. wanting the entire time. Yeah. Yeah. That, that our suffering is not comparative. Yes. That all, all of us matter and that any harm that we're carrying that hurts deserves to be acknowledged and, and seen yes. and felt and can be named and doesn't take away from the worthiness of somebody else's pain or suffering to be named or witnessed or healed. Yeah, or that, that's like so 100% it like what you just said it does not take away from anybody else's suffering to name your own and to attune to your own yeah well Emily, thank you so much for being here if if folks have been listening they're like all right what is this book where do i get it when is it being (laughs) released and what are these like 10 needs she's talking about where can i find (laughs) more of this amazing person's work where where can we direct them yeah, so the book is actually coming out July 8th. Right now, we're just a couple days before launch date. So uh, it will be out July 8th, 2022. Um, you'll be able to find it on Amazon. You can also go to my site, which is emilybeatrix.com. That's where you'll kind of be able to browse the different programs that I do with folks, like group programs. And then that's also where you can get just my writing and my one-on-one information. And I'm also on Instagram at Emily underscore underscore Beatrix if you want to find me there. Beautiful. All right. And then Emily, the closing question that we ask everyone that comes on the show is... If you could say one thing to every single person in the world and know that they would truly and deeply hear you, what would you say? Mm. That you can choose and you can choose no and you could choose yes. And in post-traumatic growth, our choice feels so hard to grow into but we can actually grow into it and choose what kind of life we want for ourselves and we don't have to be defined by what we were born into we get to create beautiful thank you everybody thank you for listening we'll catch you next time